Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. This week on the Boss Podcast, Gail Goodman takes us along the long, slow SaaS ramp of death in her phenomenal Boss Talk from 2012. Find out how to reach your hockey stick moment of inflection, have the confidence to hit send, and how to grow with one small sale at a time. Gail is a small business advocate and visionary whose work as a CEO of Constant Contact has allowed more than half a million small enterprises to build better relationships with their customers. A frequent speaker at industry events, Gail develops and tracks best practices in small business success, email, event and social media marketing, customer communications and entrepreneurship. To see the slide deck and video of this talk, go to businessofsoftware.org videos. Happy listening. They said it couldn't be done. What they really said at the start of, so I don't know, how many people know what Constant Contact is? Yeah, okay, I'll just do, just do the quickie. Uh, so we help small businesses and nonprofits. And uh, people always say, what do you mean by small? 70% of our customers have less than 10 employees. Half of them have less than five. Let me just say that again. Half of them have less than five. And what we help them do is create and grow great customer relationships. Started with email marketing, social media marketing, uh, event marketing. We let them do lots of different things now. But at the beginning, it was about email marketing. And basically, we had this crazy idea, right? To make it affordable, we were going to have to charge like $15 a month, $30 a month. And the VCs puked all over it, right? You cannot make the math of this business work. So just to give you a time frame, it's now 99-ish. Um, today, we know lots of businesses that do a great recurring revenue, $15 a month. It's you know, fantastic. But at the time, uh, there were not a lot of business models that did that, and, and very few that did that to the SMB market. And uh, I probably pitched more VCs than, I'll go out on a limb, probably more VCs than anyone in the room has pitched. Uh, it was before the days where you could really do a lean agile startup. You wanted hosting, you had to go buy some, right? You had to assign a lease, you had to get hardware, right? It's so much, you know, so much easier to build a business now. Um, and we knew that to get to some scale, we were going to need VCs. So we started on that path. Um, and they kind of had a point. Not that I would ever admit that to them. But they kind of had a point that really was, it takes a long time to get to scale. So I call that the long, slow, SaaS ramp of death. And what I'm really going to talk about today is how you navigate that ramp. So what do I mean by the long, slow, SaaS ramp of death? So we started out, uh, I just use round numbers to make them easy. We'll use $30 a month. Actually, it took us a little while to get to $30 a month, but let's, let's use $30 a month. So we launched our SaaS solution, our cloud, I'm sorry, cloud computing solution, um, in October of 2000. And by April, we had 100 customers. Yay, we popped champagne. I still have the screenshot of the billing system, which, by the way, we had to license for a quarter of a million dollars. And you can now get online for you know, pennies. But, so lots of stuff we had to build uh, that made it expensive to build the business and would do totally differently now. 
but 100 customers, 30 bucks. You doing the math in your head? $3,000, right? That wasn't going to pay a whole lot of people. By, April, by uh, September of that year, we were at 1,000 customers. Right? That's pretty awesome, 100 to 1,000. Now you're going $30,000 a month. Okay. Right? We had minimum critical mass. We had about 25 employees. Right? We weren't even close to paying the bills. And by the way, we hadn't started doing any marketing yet. Right? So the long, slow SaaS ramp of death is that it just takes a long time to get to minimum critical mass. And although you can do it today with smaller teams and no hosting and minimum viable product, eventually you've got to get to enough scale to pay people. Not that many people are going to be willing to work for equity. Um, and I think everybody sort of in a recurring revenue business faces some sort of, some sort of ramp. Um, for us, we knew fit, we had a magic number. I don't know if you know your magic number. Our magic number was 15,000 customers. Like, if we can get to 15,000 customers, that's our break-even crossover point, right? So we knew our magic number, and we were hyper-focused on getting to that magic number and finding our way to getting there. But what we were actually really planning for, you know, was the hockey stick, right? We are going to find the hockey stick, the inflection point, the magic accelerator of our business. And um, I'm going to show you in a couple of slides that we actually did find it. But it was more like a flywheel than a hockey stick. It was more like finding something that worked, repeating it, scaling it, finding something else that worked. And what I hear today, and I talk to a lot of startup folks, is that they are counting on, you, know, you guys remember the cartoon where there's like an equation on one side and it says, then a miracle occurs? Kind of. They're looking for that, I'll call it silver bullet, free, viral, network effect, right? Hey, by the way, if you can find one, congratulations, right? But I would guess that one in a hundred, maybe one in a thousand of us software entrepreneurs are going to find that kind of a flip the switch and whoosh, off we go. The rest of us are actually going to have to work the SaaS long, slow ramp of death. And I say of death because we, I actually wrote two shutdown plans for this business, right? Because eventually you start to say, boy, are we going to make it? And what am I going to need to do to get to that next level? And how do I grow along there? So I'm, I'm actually going to try to share some of those secrets uh, along the way of um, how we got over the long, slow ramp of death. So the first thing is there are going to be a bunch of mirages. What's the best mirage picture we could find? Um, so I'll share, I'll share a couple of mirages, and maybe, maybe you've had a few others that you can share during the Q&A. So the first mirage, and apologies to Len, who's in the audience, uh, because uh, he was the BD guy doing all the partners, was partners. So again, we're going to get to the SMB market. We're small. We have no brand. We have no marketing. Let's use partners. Right? They have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of small businesses they can already access. Fantastic. 
right? So we went out and we won, and these are businesses that don't even exist anymore, so it tells you, you know, digital work and all business, and we became the email marketing vendor for them. And then there was the big one, AOL for small business. Spent nine months on that RFP, and we fought the technical battle, and we won that piece of business. And they can't sell anybody else's product. Who are we kidding? Right? So I literally, for three years, every quarter, went into the board and said, we are about to sign X, and it's going to change everything. Right? And every partner, we learned a little bit more about what we should do differently with the next partner. Ooh, they didn't really have a marketing commitment. Let's get the marketing commitment. It wasn't in their flow. Their tech team wasn't bought in, so we need to make sure they're in earlier. And right? We had all these things to try to make partnering better, but in the end, we were the only guys who could figure out how to actually sell our product, and partners were just a mirage. So the next mirage was the next product change. So I'm going to talk a lot about customer engagement. In the end, the way you work, I think, um, the funnel, and I'm going to get to the famous funnel picture in a few, is all about making sure when someone tries or buys your product, they have a wow experience. They get quick to an understanding and an outcome that blows them away. And if you haven't instrumented your products or product experiences to know where customers are getting caught and what's happening and what's not happening, please do it immediately. By the way, back to the, in 99, we had to build our own instrumentation. Now there are third-party products. You can SaaS license that will help you uh, see and understand that, like Aptegic and others. But we were always just one product change from the next inflection point, right? As soon as we get rid of, um, so my famous story was um, the startup screen. I got two, I'll tell two stories here. So uh, we, usually, we started with a setup because we figured out that if we could ask just Really, it was just eight fields. If we could get a small business to tell us eight things, we could do unbelievable intelligent defaulting in their email campaigns. Right? It was little things like what industry they were in, give us your logo, point us to your website. They were things they already knew. It was going to be really fast. It was a three-page setup. People never even saw our product. Right? They never you know, rip setup out. Right? didn't work. My other favorite story is uh, our original email wizard used a who, what, when metaphor. Who do you want to send it to? What do you want to send? When do you want to send it? Kind of catchy, who, what, when. Guess what? Who is getting your email list into our system? By definition, that means you have to leave our system. Bad idea. For quick to wow, high engagement, Right? The other thing about who is it's boring. It's getting your list formatted into an Excel spreadsheet. Whoop-de-doo, right? It's the what that's fun when you start designing your campaign and you can see how great it's going to look. And by the way, you get invested with who, with the what, right? You start writing copy and putting your picture in or you know, pictures of your products in. Now you really want to get that out. It'll take a little time to format your Excel spreadsheet, right? You got to get them sucked in and, and invested. 
what is your first moment of investment from your users or customers? Right, so product changes though, we always thought there would be one, right? So we changed that and we changed that. and we ch The mirage was one is gonna make all the difference. Right, and there are other mirages out there, right? Um, I hear now about, ooh, a new pay gate, right? We got a new pay gate going in, it's gonna change everything. Free is gonna change everything. Viral's gonna change everything. What we basically learned is there are no silver bullets. There is gonna be no one thing, unless you get really lucky. So I hope I'm wrong for you, but I would go out on a limb and put a general rule out there that says, there is just not gonna be that one thing that flips you from the long, slow ramp of draft to the, to the hockey stick inflection curve. It's gonna be lots and lots of little things. And I would argue that most of those little things will happen if you continue to view your business from your customer or user inward, rather than from the metrics you wanna change outward. I hope that made sense. I'll give some examples as I go along. But fundamentally, you know, next thing I'm gonna talk about is work in the funnel. The funnel are internal metrics. The key to changing those internal metrics is by starting with a view from your customer looking at your business and your experience, not by looking at your metrics and trying to change your customer's behavior. I, I'll see if it makes sense as I go. So I assume everybody's seen a funnel picture before and even has a rough sense of their funnel, but I'll tell a few stories about kind of constant contact and lessons learned along the funnel. And this is where we really ended up kind of mixing technology and people. So we all have a tendency to want to have the funnel be um, cleanly technology and online driven. And again, I'll go out on a limb and argue that most of you will find out that it's not all gonna happen online. That you're gonna have to use some combination of technology and people to optimize your funnel. So what's the funnel? The funnel is you know, how people Kind of find, try, buy, stay. So the first one is how will prospects learn about you? How will you reach them? Right, so once you're past minimum viable product, it's all about starting to get your funnel going and making it wider and fuller and more people down it. So top question is how are people gonna learn about you? So not surprising, constant contact email marketing we started with all the classic, I would say, online inbound marketing stuff, right? Making sure we could be found, getting our op landing pages optimized, buying keywords, writing content. You know, and then there reached a point where we were like, you know, one, two, or three on all our keywords all the time. We were number one on natural search for email marketing, still are, wow. Um, Lots of great inbound links, everything worked, and we still needed to scale another notch. And we were kind of scratching our heads, right? Like, there's 29 million small businesses in the US. I think at this point we're about at 75,000 customers. Not bad, we're past our break even. But what are the rest doing? <laughs> like, why are they not all flocking to email marketing? Right? We were way past that we were supposed to go viral. The point about half of our new customers were word of mouth. So we were getting a little bit of a flywheel. 
right? Spend on pay-per-click, get two customers out, right? Buy, you know, get one at good economics, get another one through word of mouth. But we still weren't, the flywheel wasn't, the, the hockey stick hadn't started. So we went out and really started to understand what small businesses were thinking and doing and how they learned, and what a shock, right? The chef running a restaurant wasn't absorbed in internet marketing, right? They weren't even online learning about it. We were going to have to actually get offline to reach them. By the way, you can imagine this board meeting where we start sharing this data and thinking about it, and they're like, well, what do you mean? And we're like, well, we got two ideas we want to try. Radio and seminars. Okay, so we decide to try these, and we do them in very small scale, and we test them. Son of a bitch, they worked. Radio. Well, it just turns out lots of small businesses have the radio on in their business. It is playing in the background. Go figure. Right? And so we started regionally, and we tested it, and we scaled it, and we tuned it. So we became, began to have this rhythm. We called it test, scale, tune. Test, scale, tune. Right? I have a new idea for a new channel, test, scale, tune. And we've tried, I would guess, every channel, some of them multiple times. We have tried feet on the street twice. Still doesn't work. Uh, we tried direct mail like seven, eight times. Still doesn't work. By the way, you want a classic VC question, well, how do other people reach the small business market? Right? Who are your models? Right? So our models were into it. They put software on a shelf. We put a SaaS product in a box on the staple shelf. Not a good idea. Um, but then we started to really understand that the number one reason small businesses weren't doing email marketing was they really didn't understand it. And they weren't confident it would work for their business. And we had this unbelievable, crazy idea of trying to teach them that. And this was really the basics. Like, what is email marketing and why would I do it? What kind of content? How frequently should I send? What should make a good subject line? Like they needed to know all of that before they were willing to try. Well, that math's never gonna work, right? Certainly wasn't gonna work one-to-one. -one. So we decided to try this crazy idea of doing a one-to-many. We started with webinars and that worked, but then we couldn't get traffic into the webinars. Let's try seminars. Let's actually go small businesses, so a couple of things we learned, small businesses learn in their community and they learn from their peers. And they belong to some association. Uh, actually, most of them belong to more than one. So they're a member of their chamber and they belong to their, whatever their vertical is, the retail association, the restaurant association, right? So they've got kind of at least two strong affinities. I wonder if we could get the Chamber of Commerce to do seminars with us on internet marketing. Only, way to, only one way to find out, try it. So we hired two guys, one in Denver, one in Phoenix, and we said, you got six months <laughs> to prove to us that you can kind of get a regular business going, teaching small businesses at some kind of scale, 
and we'll measure the lift in your region. We won't give you any radio or any air cover. You're on your own. So that we can keep it clean and measure your lift. And it took them just about six months to build credibility, to build an audience. But then they started to really get to some critical mass. So today, when we hire one of these folks, we call them regional development directors, it takes them about six months to start up. And then after that, they are doing two to four seminars a week, 40 to 80 people per seminar. We have 22 of them, and they, they taught 125,000 small businesses. We got 125,000 small businesses last year to give us two and a half hours. Wow. Math works. Would never, I mean, never when we started would we have guessed that. And never would have we gotten there if we weren't out really understanding why customers weren't flocking to us like we thought they should be. Because we knew when folks used our software, they got a great result. Real business. Right? Number one thing a small business worries about is more revenue. We had the magic winning formula for them. And they weren't flocking to us because we had to get out to them the way they learn. Crazy stuff. So then, once we got them to learn and give it a try, you know, how do you get them, how do you get them to buy? Right? So for us, the middle of the funnel was really two things. Visitor to trial, we got them to the website, how do we get them to pick up a trial or a free tier, and then try to buy? How do we get that free uh, to paying engagement? And this is another place where we found technology had a ton to do with it, right? Website optimization, message testing, Standalone sign-up forms, mixed sign-up forms, all sorts of great stuff there. But in the end, uh, one of our biggest levers was the use of people. Coaches, we call them coaches. So someone signs up for a free trial, and a real live human being calls them and says, hi, I'm Gail. You know, I'm here to make sure you get the most out of your trial. You know, let's talk about your business and how, what you want to drive with email marketing. And they really help that small business not navigate the screens of the product, right? If they need to do that, we messed up in, right, you, you know, in design and user interaction, right? What they're helping them do is decide what that first campaign's content should be. But the biggest thing they're helping them do is have confidence to hit the send button. Because it turns out hitting the send button, maybe you've all been there, it's an email to your whole customer base is not a casual thing. And these guys are not tech savvy or marketing savvy. Right, this is the chef who opened a restaurant who does marketing part time and is not tech savvy at all. And so mixing in both technology and people, and technology had a lot to do with it. But in the end, um, the thing we learned here was really about quick to wow. So we live in a world where our attention spans have become you know, just minuscule, minuscule. So if your path isn't very quick to wow and very quick to measurable result, uh, you're just gonna lose people's attention. The phone will ring, another email comes in, they get a text message, they're gone, they're gone. So it's all about optimizing that quick to wow because once you get them to convert, you also gotta get them to stay. So turns out the number one way to get them to stay is to get them successful early. 
So here's the other bad news. When we learn something new, we have a learning curve, we get to a certain level, we kind of feel like we've got enough mastery to be good enough, and we stop. We just do. New features, can't get them to look at it, right? You got to this level, I want you to get to the next level, hard to do. So that first success is also probably your best retention lever. But everything along the funnel, you know, if the top of the funnel is test scale tune, the middle of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel is measure, test, repeat, right? Measure, test, repeat. Iterate until you get the math to work. And the number one thing, and I'm sure you've heard it from other folks, is make sure you're instrumenting your experience so you can see it all. And then the other thing I'll say is um, you're tuning at every step of the funnel, but you always have to look at the whole funnel. So what do I mean by that? Um, we did a test for wildly shortened sign-up form because we visitor to trial, we wanted to move it. We moved visitor to trial dramatically, but lowered trial to pay because they didn't know what to expect when they got in. And in the end, it matters when you put 100 at the top, how many come out at the bottom. It doesn't, the interim metrics don't matter. So always be measuring individually, but thinking, I hate this word, holistically, about your whole funnel. Because it really is all about, um, and, and innovate everywhere. So, so don't think that innovation lives on the tech side of the house. That's the, the bottom, if there's any message I hope you're walking away with today is that innovation needs to happen everywhere. And it needs to be guided by customer experience. Looking at your business from the customer in. How will they learn about these kinds of things? When will they make these decisions? What, you know, okay, great. Our biggest barrier to usage, by the way, is content. Small business doesn't know what to say. It's one of the hardest problems for us to solve for them. When you get to better marketers, they have an instinct. They're not afraid to write. Lots of things we needed to learn was about writing default content that inspired them to say, that's not what I wanted to say, and start typing. Right? We still have competitors where it says, your headline here. That's not helpful. Right? We want them to say, oh, that's not what I wanted to say, and start typing. Because the default content inspires them. That wasn't a technological iteration, right? It was an insight on how to solve that problem for them. So in the end, it's all about customer economics and scalability. So I'm sure uh, folks have talked to you about kind of knowing your lifetime value. So what's the formula for lifetime value? So I'll start with the very best blog post I've ever seen is uh, David Scott blog post called SAS Metrics, a guide to measuring and improving what matters. So lot deeper than I'm going to go here. But you know, here's the, here's the formula, right? You take your average revenue per unit, whatever, your monthly recurring revenue, times retention, right? People are always like, how do I know my lifetime? It's one over your attrition rate. It's that simple. So our average monthly attrition is 2.2% a month. So one over 0.022 equals 45 months. That's how you get it. So the math is very, uh, very simple. I once had to prove that formula to a VC on a whiteboard. Really? Anyway. Um, ARPU times retention gives you your lifetime revenue. You take your gross margin. 
you know, that gives you kind of your lifetime gross margin. You take out your cost of acquisition. And kind of what you have left is what, you know, you have to fund R&D, G&A, and profit. It's one of the ways to think about it. So here's the constant contact math, $39 a month, 45 months, call it roughly 1,800 in lifetime revenue. 72% gross margin, about 1250 in lifetime, uh, in lifetime gross margin, and a $450 cost of acquisition. So we have $800 in lifetime customer value. So $450 cost of acquisition, is that good or bad? It, it only met, you only know that in the context of how much lifetime revenue you have. For us, that's fantastic. Is everybody getting this? Yeah, okay, good. You know, um, it's just really important as you're trying to get over, you know, along that low, you know, that long, slow ramp of SaaS staff to know your economics. Because it starts to tell you which things are okay and which things are not okay. And when you try and test things, sometimes when you're not doing them at scale, they're good enough and then you can scale the economics to work. So when we did radio, we bought regionally, which is about four times more expensive than a national buy. So we knew that in advance. And so it was okay that the cost of acquisition was too big because we knew that at national, it would be a quarter of that. So the question, so, so you also have to think of it in context, but test everything. What we have found in general is things are either in the in the general range or just way the hell out, right? Get $1,800 in lifetime revenue and it costs you $6,000 to acquire a customer, you are not gonna scale your way into that model. We're pretty, we were pretty clear on that. So how did we survive? So let me just, I'll share a few, uh, a few numbers. Started painfully slowly. So this is our revenue curve from 2002 to 2005. So it started at, uh, this starts at 100K a month. So that, we were already past, uh, past our critical mass there. But this whole period, we lived along the cash line. We call it, uh, we used to call it um, only eating what we were killing. So we'd add a certain number of customers every month. I remember right at the beginning here, you know, kind of at some point we got to like 30,000 in recurring revenue we were adding every month. Great news with recurring revenue when you know your attrition is you actually know how much of it you can afford to spend. You know, because the line never goes down, it just goes up. Question is at what, right, what le you know, how fast it's going up. So at 30,000 in, in growth, it was one engineer and $15,000 in sales and marketing. One engineer, $15,000 in sales and marketing. And we just, you know, kind of kept moving our way up until we were completely confident of our scaling model uh, completely confident in our lifetime value, you know, and then uh, we started to invest more aggressively. So then we hit our hockey stick. So this is our uh, actual numbers, monthly revenue from 2006 uh, to the end of Q1. It's actually cut off at the top. It looks flatter than it should. <laughs> um, so this is basically from uh, one and a half million a month to 20 million a month. And you'll see, you know, there is uh, very clearly an inflection point. Um, and that was really when the combination of understanding our channels at the top of the funnel, our funnel conversion, and our lifetime value all came together uh, to the point where we were confident scaling the business. 
So this year we'll do over $250 million in revenue, and we will do it $39 at a time. Yep, thank you. So all I gotta say is they, um, they said it couldn't be done, uh, uh, but we went out and did it anyway. And the question I get asked most frequently is, why did you keep going? I, you know, I didn't talk about the funding path, but the, you know, the funding path was horrible. So I was telling someone at lunch. So in 2000, in the heyday of the internet, pre-bubble burst, we did a 10 million round at a 29 post. And in 2002, we did a two and a half million round at a five million post. And I learned as a first time entrepreneur what the two words ratchet anti-dilution meant. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't good. Um, but what kept us going was really two things. Um, our customers and their affirmation of our value. So we saw a values presentation earlier today and you know, our key thing, our number one uh, thing that holds us together is our passion for helping small businesses. And we just kept seeing that when they used our product, they got real revenue and it lit us up. So again, lots of great things in that values, you know, the values presentation. One of the things we did, we told a customer's story every week, every week, and we still do. Because what we do matters to the small business. And so that kept us going and our metrics kept us going. Because while there was no silver bullet, there was a continuous improvement in the metrics. All the charts were kind of edging up, right? And all our spreadsheets showed us it could happen. When we got enough of the metrics working together, that thing could happen. And so if your customers are telling you you got something and your metrics are continuously improving, stay on the long, slow ramp of death. But if either of those aren't true, it is probably time to parachute off. Um, so I think we're, uh, we're at the questions point. Great. Are there mics coming around? There are. Any, it, 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 fine, anywhere you want to go. I, I, you can see who's got your hands up better than uh, I can. Hi, uh, Sean Ryan here from SLI. Um, when did you start making a profit? I'm interested because we're sort of at that stage where we're, um, you know, reinvesting everything and then looking at bringing some more capital on to give that hockey stick. Um, but when did you start actually making money? Yeah, so we crossed over to profitability at 13,000 customers. I think that was, that was after that atrocious down round. Um, I think it was kind of late 2003 problem was it just took a lot it took a lot of capital to it took 21 million to get to that but, but then which you, is horrible but i mean i would do it better than now but <laughs> and and they started growing from there the profits started growing or did you just reinvest them yeah all? it just started expanding yeah. wildly although we were consciously making a decision uh to invest in sales and marketing spend at that point our cost of acquisition was about 300 dollars, and our lifetime value was about uh, you know, our lifetime revenue was about 1650 and we were like, spend as many 300s as you can and stay cash flow positive. So we were more focused on uh, maintaining cash than we were on profitability 
because we knew we could always turn down marketing and get wildly profitable. Right. That was what that was the you know uh, eat what you can kill, right, stage. Yeah. And, and did you charge for those seminars or were they free seminars? Totally free. Yeah. We have experimented with charging, of course. Test, test, test. Test everything. Yep. You talked about instrumenting your app, and uh, what things did you find most helpful to instrument? Um, do you do that to uh, measure engagement and experience, and what, what sort of things do you use? And you talked about the different tools that you, you, you use and you could use. Yep. What, so, you, what are they? Yeah. So. Uh, when we started, we had to build it all ourselves. So we just literally built it all ourselves. And we instrumented all of that. We started by instrumenting the early engagement piece, right? So uh, one of the things I didn't say, one of the things we learned over and over again was to be more and more and more prescriptive to our customers on what we wanted them to do first. They could always get out of the prescriptive path and see the whole power of the product. But the more we forced them, <laughs> doesn't sound very nice. The more we directed them to that early success path, the better off we were. And so it was a lot of instrumentation of that. So for us, that was the email wizard. And it, so it was literally how many people got to the template picker, how many people picked a template, how many people saved a draft, how many people edited that template, how did they get to send, and all of that. But it was also recency and frequency stuff, logins, right? Second login, third login, how soon till they get there. I um, mean, at the beginning, we just literally were, you know, putting in our own measurement and keeping that all in a database and dropping it in access every night, and the marketers would comb through it and find insights. Um, I remember kind of really early stage, literally looking at log files for when they clicked. You know, we don't do that anymore. So there are a bunch of products out there. I'm not sure. I'm going to be. I know Aptegic is one of them. I'm betting other people in this room know about others that um, make it really easy to, it, to instrument your product now. And it's all SaaS-based, and you, know, it's just, you just don't have to build the infrastructure we had to build. Are, does anyone else want to shout out other products? Kiss Metrics. I don't, I don't know that one, but OK. Yeah, so you shouldn't have to build any of that anymore, is the short answer. But it still takes, you still need someone looking at it, thinking about it. That's really the core of the problem is kind of, all right, now, now that I know people are dropping off, what's the why and what can we do about it, right? So seeing the drop-off point is just the starting point. Um, the, uh, I had sort of an aha moment when you're talking about the seminars and selling to small business, but then the thought occurred to me, well, how do I market the seminars to get the small businesses to come to those? So uh, I was hoping you might share some insight on that. Yeah, so we do that all through uh, collaborative partnerships with small business influence organizations. So fancy words for we go get the Chamber of Commerce to do joint seminars with us. We get the Retail Association, the Restaurant Association. The challenge there is that your content needs to be not salesy. Right? They don't let vendors pitch their audience. But as a trade association, building, you know, building great, bringing great content to their membership is exactly what they need to do, right? We're all in trade associations, and what they want to do is educate us and help, you know, help us improve our business. So our education is um, branded, but not salesy. And that's what got us over the hump of them letting us get in front of their audience. And we, almost, we had to do a few ourselves to prove that to them. 
you know, so the story was kind of like you go to a chamber guy and you say, oh, you know, we'd like to partner with you. And they say, yeah, we've heard that from every vendor ever, right? You just want to sell to my guys. And we say, no, really, it's, a, it's, it's neutral. I'm doing one of, our, of my own. Why don't you come to that? Because I think you'll learn a lot about, oh, and by the way, you should be doing email marketing. We'll give you a free account. So we give the chambers free accounts. Easy to give away software. Um, we'll make you a great marketer, and then you know, you, you'll see how powerful it is and want to bring it to your audience. So they have to build. So the guys in the field are both business development and content delivery and educators. So it takes a very unique person to do that job well. And we've hired you know, 22 unbelievably good ones. Um, but that's how they do it. So ultimately, they do an audience. Just a, a quick testing, iterating thing. So we kind of thought that was a really expensive way to grow the business. So we decided to see if we could do, I remember the test, we called it parachute and stretch. Could we parachute into a town and do those seminars? Could we reach those chamber guys through the phone and make it work and drive a big enough audience? And the stretch was, could we have one of the guys we already have drive two hours to the nearest city and stretch? Parachute failed, stretch worked. So we were always testing, right, this crazy idea and how we were going to scale it and what was going to work and kind of made our way through to a repeatable model. Um, it has to, it, no, um, it has to be somewhere they can comfortably visit more than once a month. So you may have a guy who's willing to drive further than that. And then you start to look at the country and you start to see where the big DMAs are and where their satellite cities are. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Thank you. Yep. Down here? I don't know where the mics are. I can't see where. Got one here. There you um, go. Good. Yeah, so quick question on price. Um, I'm fascinated. You mentioned something very briefly at the start about getting to the $30 mark. And I believe you said $39 is the only price tier right now. So a couple of quick questions. What's, what was the history of price over time? And also, what do you say to, I guess, a lot of people that say, what about a second price tier? Yeah, I, I don't quite remember what exactly I said about, about price, but um, we played with pricing at the beginning. Pricing is always a little bit of a kind of half art, half science. So at the beginning, we, uh, this was at the beginning, and now there's lots of folks in the email marketing business for small business, but there were kind of only a few of us, so we were looking at what the competitors were doing, and we also talked to our customers, and there were a few things that we learned from our customers. Um, one was when they're doing something new, and still, to this day, the vast majority of our customers who come to us to do email marketing in 2012 are doing it for the first time. Really? But SMB market. They don't know if it's going to work for them. So that's what led us to monthly. We would have loved to have forced everybody into an annual prepay, but that was never going to work. Um, they don't know how frequently they're going to want to send. Um, and they wanted it to be, they wanted it to be knowable and predictable. So we ended up going with contactless size. And so we then ended up tiering based on contactless size. And we played with the tiers and the price points. Uh, we actually started at $10 a month as our entry point. Um, and then yeah, boldly in 2004, yeah, moved prices up 50% at the bottom tier to $15 a month. Um, it ended up unlimited send at a given price tier it was at the time was kind of disruptive to everybody else who was charging by email sent. And we thought the idea of it was going to cost you every time you used our product was not a compelling 
frequency of usage incentive, right? So we knew, because we were starting to see the data, that the people who used email marketing regularly actually got better results. So if you're sending emails to your customer base, you're sending them less than like once a month, they're forgetting who you are. It's not a good thing. At least once a month, probably twice a month will get you better, believe it or not, higher open rates. So we wanted them to use it, and so the we charge you based every time you hit send was a bad idea. So we just kind of came to this aha in a conference room, let's charge that way. We've played with where the tiers split and we've played with the price point. So now it's for email, it's 15, 30, 50, 75, it goes all the way up based on the size of your mailing list. And we now uh, form the price umbrella for the market, so all of our competitors price you know, several dollars under us almost all universally to our tier structure. Lovely. Yep. But we believe if we go down, they'll go down and we'll just drive the entire industry to zero, which we don't want to do. Yep. Uh, so right. I'm a constant contact uh, customer and Thank the uh, middle of the funnel works great. It was, if it wasn't for that marketing advisor, I wouldn't have gotten to the, the push the button. So uh, your strategy works. Um, so I guess, I guess the question is, um, it sounds like you do use partners in the form of chambers of commerce um, and you're you're, you could vertically integrate to get into that bottom part of the funnel in it because the advisor for the middle part happened to work really well to get me to, to start communicating that way. Um, so do you think about CRM providers or others as possible partners in being your channel? Because when you think about like the intuits of the world, they think of accountants and bookkeepers yep. and not IT or not you know the big elephant hunting of AOL. Yeah, so I didn't mean to totally diss partners. Partners still generate over 15% of our business. There was just never a single silver bullet partner. Um, and our partners come in different forms. And we agree with the kind of, you know, Intuit uses the pro advisors, which are the accountants. But we find is the local marketing consultant, local web developer, right? Who does the restaurant turn do to get their website up or their menu designed is a very good channel for us. So we have about seven to 8,000 of those who, re, you know, resell constant contact. They don't make their money on the $15 a month. They charge, you know, $200, $300 a month to do a full serve version. Uh, we also partner a lot with application providers who have complementary apps. So that could be a CRM vendor. It could be a vertical um, operating, uh, operational system. Uh, our, big, our best example there is a company called MindBody that does the back office for day spas and yoga studios. Um, contacts are going into there. As they're the merchant, you know, they're the record, database of record, booking appointments, et cetera. We become the marketing module for them. So if you guys have an app out there where you need a marketing plugin for email, social events, we'd love to integrate with you. We have an API set and uh, we make it very easy for that to happen. Um, so we do use a fair amount of partners. There just wasn't any one that has ever driven you know, thousands or tens of thousands of customers. They all generate you know, small numbers, like the local consultants it might be one to 10. And some of our bigger partners, you know, 100 to, th to low thousands, but we never, we never found the tens of thousands one. But we're open to that if someone thinks they have a great partnership. Still looking for that one, right. Yep, who's got, someone already got a bike? Hi, I'm Jonathan. Right. Um, I have a quick question. What, what other channels apart from the seminars actually work with small businesses? Uh, you mentioned radio, uh, and I believe you did that at the beginning. Do you still do that? And what do you think of SEM in general? And you know, how, how does you know how do you get your message out there? 
Yep, so um, our, our core channels, so um, I put them in big buckets. So online, which is pay-per-click, social media, you know, SEM and SEO, you know, kind of uh, content marketing, right? We, we just do a, a, a load of that, right? I would call it kind of a combination of inbound marketing and paid online marketing. Uh, we use the regional methodology, uh, do a lot of that. Um, we still do mass media. We do both TV and radio, um, and we're constantly testing and tuning. Uh, we use partners, and then uh, word of mouth continues to be the single best channel for us. If you create a great experience, people tell their friends. Um, but you don't own the gas pedal on that. Uh, no attempt we've made to uh, bribe our customers into telling more people or even inspire them into telling more people by making charitable contributions and other things has ever given us a gas pedal on word of mouth referrals. The best gas pedal on word of mouth referrals is just a great experience. So I don't, I, you know, but those are our big, those are our big buckets. And then there's a million little buckets inside each of those. Great, one more. Got it back there. Um, I'm just curious now that you uh, have a lot of channels in operation for marketing, how do you measure since there's so much noise? Like how do you differentiate what's working and what's not? Yeah, it's a great, it is a great question. Um, I miss the days when we had so few things we could literally be sure that we knew exactly what caused the lift in each thing. Um, but we've gotten more sophisticated in our marketing measurement. Um, we, we actually use a fair amount of big data and statistical analysis, so we have a BI team, right? First two years I was the BI team, right? In Access and an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and, and we do some fairly rigorous measurement. We, you know, where we can, we do direct measurement, and where we can't, we do uh, statistical analysis and isolation. And then everything in the middle of the funnel always has measurement in a test group. So the top of the funnel is the hard part to measure. In the funnel, it's really, you know, you own, you own all the touches and you own all the sample sizes. So you can, you know, any, everything has a control group, right? Everything has a control group when we're in the middle of the funnel. But it's hard. It gets harder. Top of the funnel gets really, really complicated. How do you value the brand? It's just, it gets hard, so we squint. And we try to avoid um, a lot, you know, first touch, last touch, all touch. Try to avoid that who's arguing for which um, customer in the mix. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.